Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Quentin Minson. Today's episode features content from an educational program titled Emerging Insights on Adverse Events During Art and Implications for Treatment. During this podcast, Dr. Joseph Aaron from the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and Dr. Darcy Wooten from UC San Diego Health in San Diego, California, discuss clinical insights on HIV enterotroviral therapy safety and tolerability. For more information on Dr. Aaron and Dr. Wooten, and a link to the full online educational program, including downloadable slides specific to today's discussion, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what Dr. Aaron and Dr. Wooten have to say about HIV art safety and tolerability. Thanks so much, and it's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Aaron and I are going to be going over um, just a brief overview of some of the recent data on um, safety and tolerability related to antiretrovirals, um, but really hoping to spend the majority of the time um, having a discussion with you all um, and answering questions. So please um, feel free to enter those at any point. When we're thinking about choosing an antiretroviral regimen for a patient, of course, in addition to efficacy, um, we're also thinking and considering um, safety and tolerability issues. And you can see that weight gain has really sort of risen to the top of our minds when we're thinking about different regimens. Um, and this is because for a variety of reasons, uh, but individuals with HIV are living longer. And so we're starting to see um, some of the, the conditions that occur as people um, get older, including weight gain and the associated metabolic complications like cardiovascular disease, um, diabetes, fatty liver disease, etc. And so these are going to play into our decision about antiretroviral therapy, whether uh, we're starting a patient or thinking about switching. Um, other safety issues that might come up with certain uh, medications, for example, if we're thinking about using TDF, um, bone and renal toxicity are important considerations. And then cardiovascular, neurologic, um, liver health are also important. Um, and then if we have patients who are either pregnant or of childbearing potential, um, we might want to choose certain regimens over the other. Um, and then uh, in terms of tolerability, in addition to, to weight gain, which is, of course, both important to providers, but patients as well. There are also issues um, about uh, complexity of the regimen, um, how many pills are in the regimen, how many times a day. Um, we always need to do a good medication reconciliation um, to make sure that we're addressing any potential drug-drug interactions, talking with the patient and looking at the regimen to see if there's any food requirements. Um, for patients that uh, maybe are tired of taking a pill every day, we now um, have a, an alternative for them with long-acting injectable therapy, potentially. Um, and then, of course, a very practical consideration in terms of financial coverage and um, the, the cost of medication. So let's talk about um, the updated uh, guidelines in terms of recommended first-line antiretroviral therapy for most people with HIV. Um, the DHHS guidelines were um, just updated a week ago or so. Um, and what you'll notice here is that raltegravir, um, when our first integrase inhibitor, has actually been removed um, as an initial regimen um, for, for most people. And um, this is because Victegravir, Dolutegravir are, are highly efficacious and have you know, a much higher barrier um, to resistance. And then also um, Raltegravir doesn't come co-formulated um, the way that uh, Victegravir and Dolutegravir do. And so we, we might have some issues with pill burden there for, for certain individuals. But what you can see here in both the DHHS as well as the IAS USA guidelines is that 
Um, all the regimens contain what we call a second generation integrase inhibitor, either dolutegravir um, or bictegravir. And then for the most part, um, two nukes, so either FTC and TAF um, or uh, 3TC. Um, and then the, the TAF or TDF could be um, uh, either of those could be considered for regimens. And then the, the one difference that I'll point out is that the DHHS guidelines um, still recommend dolutegravir, 3TC, abacavir um, as one of the first-line regimens, assuming that the HLA-B5701 uh, test is negative in your patients. Um, and then uh, a newer regimen that's been added to, to both um, guidelines is dolutegravir, 3TC. Um, so this is unique because it's a two-drug regimen. Um, but there's certain caveats um, to be aware of. So patients who have a baseline viral load greater than 500,000 or co-infection with um, hepatitis B would not be eligible um, for this regimen as initial therapy. Um, you would also want to make sure you have a genotype back to make sure that there's no resistance mutations um, to uh, particularly 3TC with an M184V. So these are kind of the, the um, most recent uh, guideline recommendations. But what you'll notice is um, not here is sort of what do we choose if we are concerned about weight gain or if that's a, a particularly important um, component in thinking about um, a regimen for our patients. I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Aaron to um, take us through some of the data um, related to weight gain. Sure. So um, thanks, um, Darcy, Dr. Wooten. That was really terrific. Um, so this is a not the um, uh, this is a very complete. I think study that that really is very helpful because it's based on randomized data. This was published by Paul Sachs and in Clinical Infectious Diseases uh, in the last calendar year. Um, and what it does is it tries to help us understand what weight gain looks like um, by different classes of medication, specifically different drugs within the integrase class and the nucleoside class. So if you start all the way to the left of the slide, you can see that um, it seems pretty clear that people who start integrase-based therapy have a um, faster or, or greater increase in uh, weight gain than uh, with protease inhibitors or with um, NNRTI. We don't know for sure if, if this is due to the impact of the integrase inhibitors uh, as a kind of positive weight um, gain, but that's what most people uh, think or whether there's some weight mitigating effects of, of uh, at least of the NNRTI like efavirenz, which I think has some, some validity. Um, when we look at the middle slide, you can see that the three of the integrase inhibitors are compared and Bictegvir and Dalutegvir are associated with more weight gain than Elvitegvir-Cobi. I think what this graph shows pretty clearly is that there really is very, very little difference in Bictegravir and Dolutegravir. And again, this came from randomized data um, comparing the, the two agents. At least some of the data is from a randomized comparison. So they are very, very similar. And then finally, all the way to the right-hand side of the slide, you can see the um, impact of a variety of nucleosides. And the the contrast that I'd like to point out is really that between the yellow line, which is TDF, and the orange or reddish line, which is TAF. And there appears to be, I think, a pretty clear association of weight gain with TAF. I would be careful 
about whether we think that these this weight gain is absolutely certainly caused by TAF. I think we, we are have pretty good information that TDF has some weight suppressive effects, um, but the association is clear. Um, uh, whether we can prove T, TAF as the cause, I think is a little bit less certain. And, and, and these are those would be really good questions to ask because I know um, uh, uh, Darcy and, and, um, and I would, would, would love to talk about that with you. On the next slide, this is looking at whether incident um, diabetes might be associated with um, uh, integrase inhibitors. And these are claims data. So claims data are very useful because they're very powerful. So this is mar a market scan database from IBM uh, with um, over 100,000 individuals in the data set. So that's really powerful. Um, but on the other hand, it, uh, these claims data have to rely on kind of outcomes that are coded like um, uh, ICD-9 or ICD-10 codes uh, or CPT codes or, uh, you know, medication coding. Um, and this is looking at this very large data set um, comparing people who started on an integrase inhibitor um, compared to um, people who started on uh, non-integrase regimens. And, and if you can move to the right-hand side of the slide, it shows that um, integrase therapy was associated with approximately a 22% a, a increased risk of acquiring or having a new onset diabetes or hyperglycemia uh, during the uh, a six month period. And again, in the secondary analysis, which is obviously less powerful because there'll be fewer individuals, um, you can see this gradation, value Tegavir having the greatest risk and raltegravir basically having no risk. And this is adjusted for multiple factors, including age and male sex and, and, and comorbidities that are coded. Um, so uh, I, I think that, again, a suggestion that one of the potential consequences of weight gain associated with the integrase inhibitors could be diabetes. Now, again, these data, I think, should be used as kind of hypothesis, hypothesis generating. We need other comparative studies to get to the bottom of how exactly there might be a cause between integrase and weight gain and potentially diabetes. Um, uh, but, but I think the data are, are quite important. And then on this slide, this is looking at the advanced study um, and weight change and risk of cardiovascular disease and diabetes. The advanced study, um, I'm sure many of our listeners, listeners know, um, was a randomized comparative trial between dalutegavir FTC-TAF, dalutegavir FTC-TDF, and then a Favrin's FTC-TDF, all done in uh, South Africa. The difference in weight is along the, the top of the table, where you can see that there was, a, on average, a 10-kilogram weight gain with the dalutegavir FTC-TAF and a much, much smaller weight gain with a Favrin's FTC TDF of, of 3.7 kilograms. And when we look at the estimated cardiovascular risk, interestingly, um, uh, there was an increase with uh, dalutegavir FTC TAF, um, but it was relatively modest. And while significantly higher when compared to 
that Favrin's arm, um, uh, it, it was not really uh, very, very high. On the other hand, if we look at the estimated 10-year risk of diabetes, and again, this is an estimate of risk, you can see again that the greatest increase in risk was um, related to dalutegravir FTC TAF. Um, and, and maybe slightly surprisingly, um, Favrin's FTC uh, TDF also had an increase in risk. So again, this weight gain may not be without consequence. So with weight gain and, and ART, um, I think guidelines now recognize weight gain as a common uh, and a potentially severe AE associated with ART. I think um, many of us have the uh, have had patients that have gained, you know, 15 kilos, even 20 kilos, and obviously that has substantial risk. Um, but um, we we don't really understand it. Looks like it's greater with uh, in, integrase than with other classes, uh, and greater increase with TAF compared to TDF, and greater with deravirine than efavirenz. But again. Um, there may be some weight mitigation with TDF and efavirenz. And I think we still need clarification, and this is what the guideline said, on distribution of weight gain, what is risk is associated with it, and whether it's reversible, and what groups are at greater risk, which I think is a really important question. And we know that some groups are, are at greater risk than others. Well, and I think I can um, take it from here. So that sort of wraps up kind of uh, weight gain and, and thinking about it in terms of uh, impact of integrase inhibitors as well as TAF versus TDF. I think the other um, kind of hot topic that we've been talking about for a while now is the association between um, integrase inhibitors um, and potential neural tube uh, birth defects. Um, and so we'll kind of go through some of the more recent data here um, and talk about sort of uh, how the most recent data has really um, updated, allowed us to update the guidelines. So um, everybody probably remembers back in May of 2018 um, in, in the SAPAMO study, which was a um, study in um, Botswana, um, looking at dolutegravir versus non-dolutegravir containing regimens uh, for patients of childbearing potential. Um, and there was an unplanned analysis that was done um, um, that sort of uh caused everybody to, to stop and, and uh, take a look that there was actually um, what looked to be a, a pretty, a, a higher um, risk of neural tube defects in women who were on dolutegravir at the time of conception compared to um, other regimens, um, specifically efavirenz. And this was, was pretty unexpected. Um, and there were a lot of changes in clinical practice and guidelines in terms of, you know, dolutegravir not being uh, necessarily preferred uh, for women of childbearing potential until this was sort of further sorted out. Um, additional data ca um, came in um, in 2019. Um, and while there was still uh, an increased association with uh, women who had been on dolutegravir at the time of conception and neural tube defects, this um, difference was much lower than what was originally um, identified. Um, the, the denominator essentially um, getting bigger without more, many more cases of neural tube defects um, in women, to in babies, um, in women who were on at the time of conception. Um, and so this is kind of the, the most recent um, uh, data that's been uh, presented. And I'll sort of just highlight what's shown in the red box is that um, as we sort of followed this out, we found that really there's not um, 
uh, a significantly increased risk uh, for neural tube defects in women who um, conceive um, while receiving dolutegravir um, compared to the other regimens. And, and you know, when you compare it um, to a Favarin's, um, uh, the, the risk is really, really just slightly higher. Um, and so this was, I think, reassuring to a lot of people because um, dolutegravir um, is widely used um, and it, is highly effective um, and led to sort of some of the most recent um, DHHS guideline updates and other guideline updates um, in terms of uh, can we use dolutegravir um, at the time of con conception because the, the guidelines had kind of gone back on this when, when it was still a big question mark. Um, and so the, the most recent guidelines kind of put this to rest and, um, you know, say that it is now again dolutegravir is a preferred um, agent in the regimen for, for people of childbearing potential. Of course, you need to, you know, sort of have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with patients, sort of reviewing um, some of the data and the risks and sort of individual preferences. But it's nice to um, sort of reassuringly be able to to use this in this patient population. Um, so this was, I think, a nice update um, following out that data. So I think we'll sort of wrap up here. Um, we've covered uh, a number of these um, safety and tolerability um, considerations, really focusing um, on weight gain, um, but also sort of in specific patient populations in terms of uh, childbearing potential and, and the role of integrase inhibitors. Um, we're gonna do uh, an outcomes case and then we'll um, turn it over to Q&A. Um, so here is our outcomes case. You're providing care for a 54-year-old African-American woman who's newly diagnosed with HIV. CD4 cell count is 355, viral load 655,000. Um, no resistance-associated mutations in baseline genotype. She is HLA B5701 negative, hepatitis B immune, and all of her other labs are within normal limits. Her BMI is elevated at 28, and she does have a family history of diabetes. So we'll come to our poll question and vote. So which of the following would you recommend as an appropriate first-line regimen for this patient if you're really trying to minimize the likelihood that it will impact her weight or cause any weight gain? So go ahead and um, answer the poll. All right, great. And it looks like um, the majority of people got the correct answer. Um, so B, uh, dolutegravir FTC TDF um, is the correct answer. All of these are uh, first-line regimens that could be used in patients. Um, and, uh, you know, as we sort of reviewed some of that weight data, um, especially potentially the role that TDF might be sort of uh, weight neutral or weight mitigating, um, that would probably be of the options listed here here, um, really the one least likely um, to uh, potentially cause weight gain. Um, although we, we should always be aware and, and counsel our patients that any patient starting therapy for the first time, there is a, an expected sort of return to health um, degree of weight gain that we should counsel patients to anticipate. But um, with this regimen in particular, um, I think really nicely displayed in, in the data that Joe showed on the advanced trial, um, TAF containing regimens as well as that um, additional factor of a second generation 
an uh, integrase inhibitor with dolutegravir um, seem to be much more associated with, with weight gain compared to the dolutegravir FTC um, TDF regimen. And then, um, you know, I think we'll probably in the Q&A talk about the option of dolutegravir 3TC. Um, if I'm remembering her uh, viral load correctly, it was probably a little bit too high to be um, appropriate to use this regimen, but we'll, we might get into in the Q&A whether or not um, dolutegravir 3TC, if we could have used it for this patient, um, if that might have an impact um, on weight or not. Um, so I think we'll um, stop there and move to questions. Yeah, so Darcy Gale asked a really uh, a question, beautiful, that follows up on this. She asked, what about considering an NNRTI-based regimen in this case, uh, since she has this risk of, of weight gain and, and, and diabetes in addition? So what, what do you think about that? I think it's a it's a great question, and I don't know that I know the answer to it, um, or that there's necessarily data. Um, but it is something that I'm thinking about with my patients when I'm really concerned about weight gain and metabolic complications as well um, as uh, my patient. Um, and the thing that probably the NNRTI that I'm thinking about um, is deraverine. Now, deraverine isn't you know one of the preferred regimens for most patients. Um, and the other thing to remember about deraverine um, is that it you know does have probably a lower barrier um, to resistance compared to bictegravir and dolutegravir. So that's something that um, weighs into my decision-making. Um, it doesn't co come co-formulated with TAF. Um, it does come co-formulated with um, lamivudine and TDF. So um, if there's somebody who's got um, osteoporosis or um, renal insufficiency where I'd want to avoid TDF, I'm not going to be able to use it at least um, co-formulated. Um, but it's something that I'm thinking about doing and I'm hoping that we'll get a little bit more data in terms of um, whether or not that's the right decision uh, with respect to weight gain. I'm curious to hear your thoughts too, Joe. Yeah, I, I would pretty much offer the same answer. I think we don't know enough about who gains weight um, when we start them on uh, a second generation integrase and a TAF-based regimen. Uh, though again, our um, uh, test case of a, a, a black woman uh, especially if um, that person already has some uh, risk for obesity, they're already obese or, or at least overweight, th that would be a really high risk person. Um, I, I do think we know, for example, when uh, Duravarine was a compared to a Favarin's head to head, there was more weight gain with Duravarine than with a Favarin's, given this idea that a Favarin's might be weight mitigating. Uh, I'm not quite ready to go there um, uh, in Though in this woman, that, that uh, this case, I think I would choose perhaps a TDF-based regimen, especially if um, you know I knew her renal function was completely normal. Uh, we know that if you don't, if you avoid a booster with TDF, the risk of renal consequences is actually quite small, um, and and she may have less risk based on her um, background for for osteoporosis than than other people. So I, th I think. I would probably still stick with a second generation integrase. We do know, I mean, if you fail a first generation NNRTI, then a second generation integrase is likely to, to salvage that. So, so you don't lose a lot if the uh, uh, deravarine works. Um, but I, I would still probably stick with a second generation NNRTI uh, uh, integrase with, with probably TDF as, as we selected in this particular case, at least most people selected. 
Yeah. Well, now what about this question? Um, let's say that this patient had a lower viral load, didn't have um, any resistance mutations, and, and didn't have chronic hepatitis B, and, and so in theory would be eligible for dolutegravir 3TC. Um, would that impact weight at all? What are your thoughts about that? And would that be a, a regimen? Yeah, that's a great question. In fact, it came up in clinic today, actually. Um, to, kind of coincidentally, um, we do know that if you compare dolutegravir FTC TDF and dolutegravir TAF, that's what we saw. We, that was the direct randomized comparison in the Gemini study. There was more weight gain with um, dolutegravir and 3TC. So that goes to the weight mitigating effect of TDF. Um, I think it would probably have um, less impact than, than, um, than uh, dolutegravir TAF FTC or bictegravir TAF FTC. So I think it would be worth considering. Uh, I, I agree, you know, I, I've not used a lot of two-drug therapy in first line, but with a lower viral load, and if you have the, um, and you know uh, resistance uh, at baseline, and you know they don't have hepatitis B, I think it's, I think it's a very reasonable choice, and in fact, um, that's what we're going to do today in clinic, and, and I'll, uh, I'll, it'll be interesting to see what happens to this particular patient that um, uh, we saw today. So uh, good, good, good point. Um, we have a question from Rachel. Um, this is a good one, and, and I, I, I like this question too. Uh, she asks, how do you counsel patients with isolated hepatitis B core antibody uh, when switching off tenofovir-based ART to uh, an NNRTI sparing regimen such as dolutegravir and ropivirine? A tough question, I think. That, that's a great question. I will take a stab at it and probably get it absolutely wrong, and then you can come back and um, correct me. But uh, I think this is a really tough case, and I think one of the things I try to think through is, uh, you know, do I think this person's isolated core antibody is just a false positive? Do I think that, um, you know, they, they do have risk factors for, you know, having um, been infected with hepatitis B, and, and then they lost their surface antibody? Um, interestingly, an internal medicine resident at my program um, here did a study looking at hepatitis B um, vaccination practices and hepatitis B monitoring uh, by uh, HIV providers. And um, the consensus for this exact um, scenario was basically split um, completely 25%, 25%, 25% in terms of, you know, how to approach it, just to speak to the point that um, A, the guidelines aren't very clear on what to do, and then B, everybody's doing sort of something different in practice. So I think my first step would be to think, you know, do I think this, do, do I think this person could actually have, you know, chronic hepatitis B? You might check a hepatitis B DNA um, to see, you know, maybe they have a cult um, infection, and then, um, because, right, we worry about the risk of um, stopping a tenofovir-containing regimen if somebody has chronic hepatitis B infection. Um, but I'm curious to know what your thoughts are, Joe. Yeah, boy, I, you know, first do no harm. So for, for sure, um, I would make sure that they were, you know, antigen negative and DNA negative. Uh, and then, you know, we've argued about whether this person should be vaccinated or not. And I don't know what you would do at your center. And, and I know Raj Gandhi has looked at this in the distant past, but but I would be tempted to actually vaccinate this person, um, that which you know people may. I, I think that has little harm, uh, and 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 then reconsider. I, I just 
you know, I would have to have a pretty strong reason to take this person off a tenofovir containing regimen. Um, that that would be my my approach. I would I I have again, this is really strange. I saw one of my patients today who was surface antibody positive. I never checked a core. He was antigen negative, so antibody antigen negative. He had a tremendous difficulty with nucleosides. I took him off, and um, that patient had a um, uh, a huge um, increase in hepatitis B DNA, which I didn't check before I did it, um, up to 54 million. <laughs> uh, so I am very sensitive to the fact that that I think those two drug regimens, uh, are, which are great, convenient, and safe, I'm, I'm very uh, cognizant of, of paying attention to hepatitis B status. Yeah, definitely. I also just generally, um, I, I, I'm always looking for a reason to get people off of real pivoting. Um, I've just run into issues in terms of drug-drug interactions and the food requirements um, that have been problematic um, for some of my patients. So um, I'll just leave that there. But um, let's turn to another question from Mark. So um, in, in this new regimen with cabotegravir and rilpivirine, the long-acting injectable therapy, um, what are your thoughts, Joe, and what, what does some of the data show in terms of um, impact on weight gain? And, and could this be a more sort of weight-neutral regimen um, for people? What do we know there? Yeah, um, it's interesting. I know best about cabotegravir, and I'm a little less sure about the combination, so you, you may know more. Um, what we know about cabotegravir, because it's been studied in HIV uninfected people in the setting of uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis, that we know that there's kind of a modest uh, weight gain with cabotegravir that's probably consistent with, with what happens in people um, in life, we, we unfortunately all of us tend to um, gain weight um, very modestly, a kilogram or less per year, but but a couple, a pound or two per year, um, and that's what um, we saw in the in the prep studies. So we haven't heard a whole bunch about cardiovascular risks with a bacavir recently. Um, should we ever use a bacavir as first line therapy? There's kind of a disagreement. Um, uh, between the uh, DHHS guidelines and the ISUSA guidelines, where where do you sit? Uh, yeah, with that? you know, I, I was quote unquote raised by the DHHS guidelines, um, but I have to sort of say that I I tend towards the ISUSA guidelines for a couple of reasons with respect to not having um, dolutegravir three TC abacavir as one of the preferred regimens for most people. Um, so. Of course, you have to have the HLAB 5701 test result back before you start that regimen. Um, and, you know, we're doing a lot of rapid start, same day starts now. And so we don't always have that information. Um, and I, you know, I am concerned about the cardiovascular risk. The, the data is somewhat mixed with, you know, some studies showing an increased risk of cardiovascular um, disease associated with the back of ear, while others, um, you know, haven't shown that. All the studies are imperfect, but I think you know, all other things being equal, if you can find a regimen that doesn't have that associated toxicity, I would tend to sort of use an alternative regimen than using one with um, with a back of ear. So that, you know, I and, and 
with the weight gain that we're seeing um, in association with integrase, the second generation integrase inhibitors and kind of um, seeing patients with HIV living longer and kind of having some of these metabolic complications occur. Um, I'm trying to, I, I never start somebody, um, I can't remember last time I started somebody on an abacavir containing regimen. And then for patients who are already on it, I'm looking to see if they're appropriate um, candidates to actually switch to something else um, because of that um, that cardiovascular risk. So that's kind of where I'm at um, in my practice. Are you doing something similar? Yes, very similar. I would argue that if you had someone that was, you were sure were hepatitis B immune or, or hepatitis B negative, and um, they didn't have a viral load greater than 500,000, what would be the advantage of dalutegravir um, a bacavir 3TC over dalutegavir 3TC uh, uh, alone. So I, I would argue that that um, really the the scenario where you would want to use dalutegavir a bacavir 3TC as a start of therapy is, is really a very very uh, limited uh, scenario. So 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 I do think that um, uh, um, it's really not. Um, not a not a common not common for me, and I I, I have a hard time coming up with a, a scenario where um, where I would be I would be using um, a back of air, To be honest with you. Um, yeah. Well, you know, there's another question um, sort of talking about um, maybe side effects and, and toxicities that um, maybe we've been talking less about, but I think still come up on occasion. Um, what, what would you do with a patient who's maybe on a dolutegravir um, containing regimen, but then, you know, after being on it for two or three months, um, they start to develop, you know, maybe a little bit of sleep disturbance and maybe some like increased anxiety. Would you, uh, what would you do? Would you attribute to the dolutegravir? Would you change? Um, what what's been your experience there? Yeah, um, that that's a that's a really um, uh, it was a little bit more common <laughs> before. I don't know what's exactly happened where you know uh, it was really quite a bit of discussion. It's been kind of replaced by weight gain. I have seen it. I actually saw it with raltegravir to be honest uh, in a few people. You know, way back when. I, I do think integrase inhibitors occasionally have effect on on anxiety and then sleep. Uh, so um, I, I think that um, uh, there is a um, uh, it is possible that that's the the cause, and I would kind of look into um, make sure that there aren't other causes for anxiety. You know, people have a lot of stress, especially in, uh, at this time and with the COVID. Um, uh, but I do think that um, uh, it's possible, and that is a scenario where. I might consider, especially if the person was well suppressed, you know, an, an, an integrase-based therapy, for example. Uh, I do know I, I've had other providers tell me that, well, sometimes just switching among the uh, integrase inhibitors actually works. So going from dalutegravir to bictegravir, um, though, though I feel like you can see it with either. So, so I, I would take it seriously um, that it could be related to the dalutegravir, especially if I don't uh, find another source. So, um, uh um, I think that's important. So I, I want. I do want to get back because because I'm conscious of the time. I, I have open um, uh, Chloe Orkin's um, New England Journal paper of the FLARE study, and uh, this is a direct quote from the paper. At week 48, the median weight gain from baseline was 1.3 kilograms in the long-acting therapy group, and 1.5 kilograms 
in the oral therapy group. Remember, in the oral therapy group in that study, uh, participants were on uh, dalutegavir, abacavir, 3TC. So, so not TAF, but dalutegavir, abacavir, 3TC. And abacavir is kind of, at least in, in uh, the data from Paul Sachs, is kind of in the middle between TDF and uh, TAF. So um, contrary to my uh, uh, guess, which was off, um, there doesn't really appear to be much in the way of substantial weight gain uh, with um, uh, cabotegravopivirine. And the interquartile range was a loss of a kilo up to a gain of five kilos. So, so there is a, uh, sorry, uh, less than a kilo up to a gain of 3.9 kilos. So, so mm, probably almost nine, almost 10 pounds, but, um, you know, uh, probably in a return to health kind of thing. So that, I think that's, you know, a good question that one might ask. Maybe that is a strategy for someone where you feel there's a high um, likelihood of weight gain, maybe suppressing on initial on oral therapy and then moving to cabotegravopivirine could, could be considered. I wasn't aware of that. And I appreciate Mark, uh, our questioner, uh, on, on bringing that issue to our attention. That was really great. Thank you. And just to maybe wrap up the discussion on on uh, the long-acting cabotegravirolpivirine injectable therapy, any um, important drug-drug interactions that we need to remember um, with these? Yeah, the, well, the big advantage is what you brought up, of course, um, which is um, uh, we don't have to worry about the uh, proton pump issue uh, if the rolpivirine is injected. Now, there is that um, you know four-week lead-in where it is important, uh, but after that, uh, there, there, you obviously don't have that issue with an injectable. Um, and uh, the other thing would be that um, there are some studies of direct to inject where, where you start with the injectable without that lead in. And, and I think we'll hear more about that. That's not, um, that is not a, uh, in the package insert currently. So I'm not recommending it, but, but it, I know people are studying it. Uh, but I think sometimes with injectables, we forget um, about drug interactions, uh, and one has to be very careful about agents that are uh, inducing agents, right? So agents like rifampin, rifabutin, uh, uh, carbamazepine, uh, dilantin. Um, so those agents will increase the clearance of uh, both cabotegravir and ropivirine, and even though you know, the patient isn't taking those pills and depending on how your medication uh, system is set up in your electronic medical record, when someone's scanning it, they they might not pick up that this person, you know, three weeks ago got cabotegravirolpivirine. So we, we have to be careful about that. That's the main one that comes to mind for me, our, our strong inducers. And and you'd probably put St. John's Wort right, right in there too. So um, we do have to be careful to keep that top of mind uh, if we, when we go to long-acting injectable for treatment. Yeah, but I think you know the nice thing is, right? Overall, there's there's not a ton of drug drug interactions with with that regimen, or or really with most of our um, our preferred uh, first line regimen. So Absolutely. that's great. There's one follow up question about sleep disturbance um, and big 
Tegravir. And if we've um, seen any data on that, um, I haven't seen any data. Um, I've, I've had one or two patients where I sort of chalked it up to that, um, but it's been very minimal. I don't know if you've seen data on that. Yeah, I don't, I don't know of data. There probably are some, but, but I would, I would uh, say that in my experience, I've seen it. Um, uh, and uh, there, there are very, very similar drugs, Dalyatavir and Bictegravir. So I, I would be kind of shocked. I mean, the thing that's amazing is that how, you know, the weight gain that was seen in the, uh, in, in that nice paper from Paul Sachs, uh, it's like virtually overlapping between Dalyatavir and Bictegravir. So I don't, I don't think there's anything particularly special about the um, uh, adverse effects of those two agents. I think they're very similar and overlapping. And, and, you know, to be fair, they're very, very good. They're very, very safe medicines and they're extremely well tolerated, both of them. Uh, and, and the fact that, you know, you're, you're much younger than me, but, you know, if you had told me in the, in the early nineties <laughs> that I would be having a discussion in 2021 about the risk of weight gain in HIV, I would have said, you're, you know, <laughs> stop smoking whatever you're smoking and, and let's get back to reality. Um, so it's really a very different world. All right. Well, I think we're just about at time. That was a great discussion. I really appreciate all of the questions that you sent in. Great. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Great. Thank you very much to Dr. Aaron and Dr. Wooten. And thanks to listeners for joining in. As a reminder, to view the full educational program, Emerging Insights on Adverse Events During Art and Implications for Treatment on the Clinical Care Options website, click on the link in the show notes. And please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thank you and have a wonderful day.